good if you could keep those. Uh, your Bible's open to 1 John chapter 3. Hopefully you've got an outline there, which will, I hope, be of some help. Because you might have noticed in that second reading, with the passage that's before us, as we work our way through the book of 1 John, we enter difficult territory, because these are some difficult verses. Have a look at verse 6 of 1 John chapter 3. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. It's clear, isn't it? It's sharp and it's clear. And in case you missed it, glance over to verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin or perhaps even will sin. Throughout the course of the history of Christianity, there have been numerous Christians who have felt that they've got themselves to this point in their maturity as Christians, they've entered this realm and plane where they, well, where they don't sin. Uh, It's what's known as sinless perfectionism. And there is this possibly untrue story about the 19th century Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon, in which he debunked this idea that you could be sinless and Perfect, And he debunked it in a memorable way. Spurgeon was at this conference where there was this preacher who taught this idea. In fact, he thought that he had got to this point where he no longer sinned. And Spurgeon didn't challenge him on the spot. Instead, the next morning, what he did is Spurgeon went and got this jug full of milk and poured the milk over this man's head to which the perfectionist responded with the kind of rage and hostility you'd expect from any sinner. Perfectionism debunked. There have been many who have claimed that they've got to this state where, where they don't sin, but I don't think that represents us here this afternoon. I think many of us, in fact, are quite aware of our sin, and perhaps we're so aware of our sin that sometimes we're a little inoculated to it. See, the opposite of sinless perfectionism and the opposite end of the spectrum and a similar problem is that of spiritual complacency. It's a shrugging of our shoulders to sin's inevitability. You know, because Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And forgiveness is God's job, after all. See, when we come to a passage like this, I think it presents us with two problems. They're there in the outline. The first one is in our own experience, because as we read there, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, that doesn't seem to line out with, I think, what we would see in our own lives and certainly what we recognise in other people's lives. Many of us are so aware of our own sin and, in fact, how easy it is to sin. And if it were only simply a matter of trusting Jesus equals never sinning. See, where does it leave the Christian person who's stuck in sin, who's caught, entrapped, held down and overwhelmed by the sin in their life? I wonder if you've ever been in that moment of life, that season of life, where you've just been caught in this what seems cycle of sin and and you've just wondered to yourself has God's patience run out 
second problem for us is a problem with the context of the book. As we've been working our way through this book of 1 John, we've seen that John, in fact, has talked about sin before, but he's talked about it in quite a different way. Why don't you flick back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. You see there in the first chapter in verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Wait a second. What is John saying? What does he mean? Because in chapter 1, he's saying those who deny their sin, they, they can't live in him. They can't be Christians if they deny their sin. And in chapter 3, it seems like he's saying those who are Christian, who abide in God, cannot sin. So what's he saying? Is he confused? Has he changed his mind in a couple of chapters? We come to this passage with a lot of questions, and I hope to shed some light on some of those questions and in turn some light on our, on our lives. And most of all, I hope to shed some light on the light himself, the Lord Jesus. So let me pray as we come to a difficult section of the scriptures. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that as we open your word, you would challenge us as you intend and encourage us as you intend that we might experience Jesus Christ through it, who is your word and your light and our life. Amen. John writes that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. But what does John actually mean when he speaks about sin? How does John speak about sin here in 1 John chapter 3? Well, to, in order to understand that, what I want to help us to understand is that the Bible speaks about sin in, in fact, lots of different ways. Sin is depicted in many ways in the Bible. Often when we think about sin, we only or merely think about sin as transgression, as rule-breaking, to cross a known boundary. Sin, I think, when our minds first think of sin, they think about it in terms of breaking the law. And the Bible certainly does depict sin in this way. And when it does, it uses usually specific specific words for sin, like transgression or trespass. However, that's just one dimension of sin. The depiction of sin in the Bible is far more complex than than just transgression. Perhaps the most broad category when the Bible talks about sin is that of missing the mark missing the mark of what God intended us to be. That's not missing the mark of what we intend ourselves to be or missing the mark, as some psychologists say, of what others intend for us to be. No, that's missing God's mark of what he intended us to be as humans, not living up to what God meant for us as he created us. But that's not John's category here either. Now, have a look at what John thinks that is is focusing on as you look at verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So when John says that sin is lawlessness, he's talking about something more than simply rule breaking. Sin is not less than rule-breaking, but it's more than that, and particularly here in verse 4. The way John understands sin here is a disposition that not merely breaks the law, but has a contempt for God's law. Because there's a distinction. In fact, 
the, the way the New Testament uses the word lawlessness, it uses the word in, in a technical kind of way and it's associated with open rebellion, with opposition to God, with a disposition of hostility towards God. And as we read the New Testament, we, we see that often lawlessness is associated with the last days, the last time. This is something that John has been speaking about towards the end of chapter 2, so it fits within the context. If you want to follow this up, you can see it more in Paul's letter, second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verses 3 and 7. In other words, lawlessness, which John is speaking about here, is utter contempt for God and his saving purposes in Jesus Christ. That's what John thinks about and is focusing on here when he speaks about lawlessness, which I think is interesting because my hunch is that many of us don't consider ourselves or others to be lawless. Many people would say, I'm not hostile to God. I'm not opposed to God at all. God's got his place, but I'm just living my life my way. But right there is the problem, because it's not your life. It's not your life to discover. It's not your life to control. Your life does not belong to you. It's his, and it's his by virtue of creation. He is the one who has formed you and made you. He created you in order that you might live for him. That's for all humans. But if you're a Christian, it's by virtue of redemption that you have been bought with a price. So you are his twice over. So when we take and use what is his for our own destructive purposes, when we take our bodies, our time, our work, our thoughts, our relationships, our material goods when we take what is his and use it for ourselves, that is deeply offensive to God. It's deeply offensive because you're taking something that is very precious to him. What is precious to him? You are. And when you take what is precious and you use it for yourself, you cheapen what God has given. You pervert what God owns. You desecrate what God considers sacred. And this, in God's eyes, is an act of rebellion. It's an act of hostility. It's more than that. It's a declaration of war against God because he's the one that owns you, made you, and has redeemed you. And so to understand what John is doing here, we have to see that John is setting sin in terms of this cosmic battle. Because lining up on one side of this valley is Satan and all the forces of evil. And there on the other side of the valley is God and Christ and his spirit and all his saving purposes. And John is saying that when we sin, what we're doing is we're picking a side. Have a look there in verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John is saying to sin is to side with Satan. Uh, At the moment, there's a Netflix uh, movie or TV series called The Heavy Water War. And uh, I haven't actually seen it. I've just seen it come up on the things, but I know the story quite well. It's about 
when the Nazis take over Norway. And uh, before the Nazis had taken over Norway, Norway um, had this very advanced factory for the production of heavy water, which is essential for nuclear bombs. But as the Nazis took over Norway, they took over this factory. But the factory workers just went to work. There, day in, day out, the very same way that they went to work before the Germans took over. And there they were, oblivious to the fact that they were assisting Hitler in his desire for the production of a nuclear bomb. And it's the same way for us with sin. When we sin, we side with Satan against the purposes of God in Christ. When we sin, it's a declaration of war against God because God has declared war on sin. Up to the third point in your outline, because what I want us to see is that John is doing something that's, that's quite difficult to see at first glance, and he does it with the way that he arranges the structure of what he says. If you have a look there in verses 4 and 5 and verses 7 to 8, you can see that what John is doing is he's drawing in parallel the power of sin with the person of Satan. Have a look at verse 5. We read that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And if you glance over to verse 8, in the parallel verse, it says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What John is showing here is that sin and Satan are closely aligned. And as we've said, there are many ways in which the Bible depicts sin, but one of the ways that is often overlooked is the way in which sin in the Bible is seen as this cosmic power that is aligned with Satan. And one of the ways we see this is in that spine-chilling section back in Genesis chapter 2, because we read that the serpent deceived Eve and killed her and brought death. And then Paul, when he's writing to the Romans in the New Testament, thinks about what was said back in Genesis chapter 2, and he, he in fact, not takes um, Adam's role, but he takes Eve's. And he writes from Eve's perspective in Romans 7, he says, sin deceived me and killed me. You see, the serpent aligns with sin and vice versa. But, I mean, that's probably not groundbreaking for you, that somehow there's a connection between Satan and sin. So what? What does it matter? Well, it means that sin can never simply be something that you can live lightly with. It's not something that you think you don't need to worry about. In fact, we see that sin, in terms of humanity, is something that controls us. We are not in control when it comes to sin. That's why um, we read in John chapter 8, everyone who commits, Jesus says this, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. A slave is not in control. Sin is a power. Sin is not just happen, that, you know, the bad thing that you happen to do. Sin is the way that your whole life is gripped by this destructive force, a power that enslaves us. Now, I know that many people don't feel like they're under the power of Satan. 
But nor did those Norwegian factory workers. They didn't feel like they were working for Hitler either, but they were. You have to remember that one of Satan's chief works is deception. He's a trickster. He fools us into thinking and he fools our world into thinking that he doesn't control them. Sin deceived me and killed me. Romans chapter 7 verse 15. Paul, in this really striking moment of honesty, he's thinking about his life and about the role of sin in his life. He's he's frustrated. And he says in chapter 7 verse 15, I do not know what I do. I do not know what I do. Not merely I don't know why I do it. That's a over-interpretation. Literally, Paul says, I do not know what I do. Such is my level of self-deception. Such is the control that sin has. And so John knows this. John knows this about himself. He knows this about Christian people. And so he says there in verse 7, Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. See, who has to be told that they're in danger of being led astray? It's those who are at great risk. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we deceived? How would we know? See, how would we know? Have a look in there at verse 7. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. John point here is that we're not in control we're not in control because it might appear like we're in with a level of control over our lives often a person with anorexia has a control in fact the anorexia starts with a level of control they're able to control their diet but then what happens their diet controls them The workaholic starts with a level of control over their schedule, but then what happens? Their schedule starts to control them. You see, we can be deceived as human people. And if John is right, we're at risk and great risk of deceiving ourselves. And so there's a warning here as John, with his fatherly tone, presents before us. He says, Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Our sinful actions mean that we line up not with God, but against God. Don't be deceived. A sinful life is in opposition to God. Don't be deceived. It's impossible to be in allegiance with God, but to live in opposition to him in sin. Do not be deceived. We need to take seriously what John is saying here. This is the tone of the passage. It's one of warning and gravity. We need to take seriously what John is saying about sin, but we also need to take seriously what John is saying about the Saviour. Because who is Jesus? We're up to point four in your outline. How does John depict the Saviour? Have a look there in verse five. Verse five of John chapter three. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And look at verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy... The devil's work. Who is Jesus, according to John? Well, he is the sin destroyer. Jesus is the serpent crusher. 
And that is why God sent his son into the world. Sometimes I think we get the sense that what's really good about the gospel and the good news is that God has sent his son into the world so that we can be accepted just as we are and therefore remain just as we are. Let me be clear. Because of the work of Jesus, you have access to the throne of grace. You have been accepted just as you are. But God did not send his son into the world to leave you just as you are. God sent his son into the world for sinners. God did not send his son into the world for sinners that they would remain as such. John is saying that God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to destroy sin, to expose its darkness, to reveal its lies, and to empty its power. God's purpose was intended from the very beginning. We see this in Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve act for the first time in sin, they commit this rebellion against God. Because what they do in Genesis chapter 3, we read that they, they decide that they want to be their own God that they want to rule, they want to be in charge, and if, even if God isn't in the picture, they want to sit on his throne. And as one of my kindergarten kids said this week in Scripture, talking about two kings, Saul and David, and his insight was, you can't have two kings, there can only be one king. And that's true for us as well, because we sit And we want to sit on that throne as well. And that means that there is consequences. There are consequences for Adam and Eve's sin. But here's the thing. As we saw, I think, at the start of the year, we said that we act out the script that Adam and Eve wrote. We act that out. And what's the consequence? How's that working out for us? Well, it means that there's destruction in our lives. When Adam and Eve rebelled, it brought a brokenness to humanity. Broken relationships. Broken bodies people who were isolated and lonely, and we experience that. We experience the brokenness of our bodies, the brokenness of relationships. We experience that isolation and that loneliness. So do you see what sin does? Sin is this power that controls us, and sin is a power that destroys us. It destroys our humanity. And yet God, in the gospel, comes to people who have declared war against him, And he comes to his wayward children who are ruined and wrecked by sin. And with a broken heart and with great determination and resolve, God declares not war on us, but war on sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, God says to the serpent, just after Adam and Eve have sinned, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you hear what God is saying here? This is God's declaration of war against the powers of evil, the forces of Satan, against this cosmic rebellion and therefore this cosmic war. And and really that's what the Bible is about in so many ways. There's this arc, this narrative arc, this, this line that runs through the Bible all about 
the response to what God has said in Genesis chapter 3, 15 to the serpent about his promise to crush the head of this serpent. And there, from Genesis chapter 3, there's this anticipation, there's this promise that's been made in Genesis 3, and there, as the Bible unfolds, it's just the anticipation of when this promise will come true. There's a waiting for this seed, there's a waiting for this serpent crusher, this sin destroyer. We see the kind of expectation in the child of Adam and Sarah, is he going to be the one? In the child of David and Bathsheba, is he going to be the one? Ultimately, we see it's in the child of Mary that is the one. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. And as we conclude in the Bible, at the very last book of the Bible, picking up on that first, third, third chapter, that promise of the destruction of the evil one, John, the very writer of this letter, the writer of the gospel and the writer of the book of Revelation, puts it with apocalyptic flair in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the desert and there was war in heaven. Michael and his his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But they were not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. See what's clear in John's mind? That promise that this serpent will be destroyed, that promise has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. This woman has given birth to the one who has destroyed all that would harm and hurt humanity. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to do so. That's our next point there. Because have a look at verse 5. John says that in him there was no sin. You see what John is saying, that in order for sin to be destroyed, it was necessary for there to be one that was never tainted by sin or its effects. Because as we read the scriptures, we see that Jesus is diametrically opposed to whatever sin is. Jesus is the opposite of it. And and he's the opposite of it at his very core, so much so that he committed no sin, 1 Peter tells us. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We don't even have a category for this. I don't think that every moment of his life, 
And in every area of his life, he lived in single-minded devotion and dependence on God through the Holy Spirit. He loved God fully and in every way and loved his neighbour. And he grieved over the sins of Jerusalem, but he would never tolerate sin. Jesus, the one who has come to destroy sin, was pure and holy. And John wants us to know that if we have to have fellowship, if we say that we trust in Jesus, then we can't indulge in sin because to indulge in sin and to trust in Jesus is a contradiction. He wants, John wants us to know that to savour in our, we cannot savour our sin and the sin destroyer at the same time. And so he writes there in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. If we know that, it must change us. And so he writes in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, the serpent crusher, the sin destroyer remains in him, or perhaps it's the Holy Spirit, some think. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. See, what happens when someone becomes a Christian, whether they know it or not. But here's the truth. When we become a Christian, as we saw two weeks ago, it's described as a new birth. We're described as a new creation, and it is a wonderful thing. Because new birth entails this radical new change of what it means for us to be ourselves. Remember back in verse 1 of chapter 3, when he's talking about You became children of God. This is who you are. There's been this radical change. And so for those who have not experienced this new birth, sin is natural. You just get on with it. It doesn't trouble you. But for those who have experienced this new birth, sin is always unnatural. See, I don't think many of us suffered from, um, and I don't think any of our children, you might correct me, uh, suffered from the, the habit, say, indulge me in this illustration, with barking like a dog. If When you were growing up, did, you, did anyone bark like a dog? No? I'm getting blank stares? No one barked like a dog. And if you did, if you did bark like a dog, running around the house on your fours barking like a dog, what would your parents say? Get up. Talk normally. Act like a human. Why? Well, it's possible for a human to bark like a dog. But the parent recognises that that child is, that a dog is beneath them. And for them to bark like a dog, that's not who they are. That's not their nature. One can bark like a dog, but it's a contradiction, contradiction of their nature. And so in the same way, there is a radical new nature in us. Everything that you've done in the past, When you trust in the Lord Jesus and he brings you into new birth, that can't touch you. That's not who you are. Who you are is who God says you are. His precious child, his beloved one. And here's the thing. That might be true, but we don't believe it. And Paul knows we don't believe it. He asks this question in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. It's penetrating. He says, do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you. I don't think we do. I don't think you do. 
I don't think I do. The one who committed no sin resides in you. You know, when we baptise um, either adults or children, there's um, sometimes what appears this strange kind of thing before the actual baptism. There's these vows that they make. And one of the vows that, uh, that we ask, and this is what Christians have really confessed f- from the early church, is this question, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of evil that rebel against God? That's a bit odd, you know, it's a cute little baby, there they are, having to renounce sin and Satan and all the forces of evil. What Cranmer was doing as he wrote the prayer book which we use is he was setting, setting baptism in the middle of this cosmic war and he was saying, this is, this is what you're being birthed into. There is a new birth, you're coming out of the waters of new birth in baptism, but you're coming out to a battle. You're coming out to a spiritual battle and there are two sides which you can join. So here on your behalf, your godparents and parents are going to make a promise that you renounce them. And so we need to remind ourselves, do we renounce all that is evil, Satan, and everything that rebels against God? Well, I want to close. Uh, And I want to close by taking us to that third question in our final in our outline, our lives. I think this is a dangerous text because when we read um, these kinds of verses, like in verse 6 and 9 in John chapter 3, on the one hand, uh, there are people who often have this false kind of assurance, who think of themselves as Christian, but they live in open rebellion. They think they're okay. They claim the blood of Jesus but it doesn't affect at all how they live. They could just keep on sinning because, hey, why wouldn't God just forgive them? And so for that, for that kind of person, perhaps someone here tonight, there's a sharpness in what John is saying here. We need to consider it. And if that's you, you need to consider it and make your election and calling sure. On the other hand, when we read verses like this, I know that there are many people here who are, because of the tenderness of their conscience, who are so overwhelmed and so burdened. When, we, when you hear me talk about that first kind of person, you, in fact, put yourself in that first category. You mourn over your sin. It weighs you down. You want Jesus to take care of it, but you're, sometimes you're not sure he will. And so if that's you, I want you to know that John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. You see, if you go to him, you are siding with the one who destroys sin because you are bringing it to him to destroy. And it, in some ways, whatever category you might think that you're in, it's not as important as this. Because when we read verses 6 and 9, we think the answer is just to stop sinning. You know, after all, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep all my commandments. And we think, yeah, I just... I, you know what, I just need to really keep those commandments more. That is what God wants me to do. 
But that is not the answer, and here's why. Because you are not the sin destroyer. You are not the serpent crusher. He is. This is John's point there in verse 6. Just finally have a look at it. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. See what John's answer here is? The answer is to look at Jesus, to come to him with your sin, to know him, to know the one who did do battle with Satan through obedience in the wilderness. When he was at his lowest, he overcame all the deception and temptation of the evil one, the one who took our sin on his behalf so that God might not crush us, but our sin that would be crushed in him. See, friends, we need to look to him. We need to come to him. We need to know him. We need to surrender to him. Then and only then will we start to see victory over the sin in our lives. And only then will we gain the assurance that John wants us to have because our assurance is not found in ourselves. It's found in him, his life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, his promised return. Look to Jesus, the one for whom mercy flows. Amen.